Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. Hey, everybody, and welcome to our final episode of 2020. It has been a hell of a year, to say the least. And so today, we here at The Bay want to reflect on the people and the places that stuck with us the most. And one of the things that that stood out to me in terms of moments was talking to each of these folks and, and hearing them say, doing this makes me feel better. I'm always like amazed by how much people share with us and how much like they give. So we're gonna do something a little bit different today. Each of us here at The Bay, that's Erica, Alan, and myself, are going to share some of our favorite episodes and most memorable moments on the show this year. I'm Devin Kadayama. Welcome to The Bay. All right, let's just get straight into this. Uh, so the homework for each of us was to think of one episode that we produced in 2020 that stuck with us. I'm going to start with our very own producer, Erica Cruz Guevara, or if you follow her on Twitter, you know she's at Notorious ECG. So ECG, what story stood out to you? So the episode that I chose was an episode from April 15th, and it was a remembrance of San Francisco lesbian rights activist Phyllis Lyon, who passed earlier this year. Phyllis Lyon is just someone who was described to us by our guest, who was Kate Kendall, who was the former executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, as like this activist who saw this incredible arc of change in the lesbian rights movement. One really has to understand what it was like to be an LGBTQ person in the 1950s. She was someone who like lived in a San Francisco where it was like literally a crime to be LGBTQ, where um, being bisexual was deeply um, closeted. And then she became one of the first people to marry uh, her wife, um, Del Martin at San Francisco City Hall. I think it was one of the last episodes, actually, that I that I hosted uh, before you came back from vacation, Devin. And I just like remember, like sitting after that interview, which we did on a Zoom call. Um, you know, this was at the beginning of the pandemic, and I just remember sitting with myself and just being like, "Oh my gosh, I, this is what I get to do for work. <laughs> like, I just get to talk with people about people who they love." Yet when I met them, I remember having all those feelings of awestruckness and overwhelmness. 
and yet they were so down to earth and they were excited to meet me because I was the new legal director at NCLR. They loved NCLR, had supported the National Center for Lesbian Rights from the time of its inception in 1977. And so right away, they put me at ease and made me feel really comfortable in their presence, which, Mm -hmm. you know, not every icon will do for you. Was there like a moment in that conversation, which you're right, was super tender and super intimate that really stuck out with you? Ooh, there was uh, this moment where Kate was describing what it was like to be at San Francisco City Hall to witness this just like monumental moment in LGBT history uh, and getting to watch Phyllis Lyon marry her longtime partner, Del Martin. I'm thinking about this San Francisco Chronicle photo of Phyllis and Del. It's a, it's like a super sweet photo. They're holding onto each other. You can see their foreheads are pressed to one another. They're wearing these like fly pantsuits <laughs> and people are clapping in the background and you're among them looking very emotional. And I'm curious what witnessing that moment was like and what it has meant to you. I remember thinking in that moment, who gets to do this? Who gets to witness this with these two amazing women, knowing that we really were kind of blowing the doors open uh, when it came to the fight for marriage for same-sex couples. And those pantsuits that they're wearing, the, the turquoise one and the lavender one, are, are now at the LGBT Historical Society in mm-hmm. San Francisco. Um, these iconic pantsuits that they, they wore them in 2004 <laughs> for that picture, and then they wore them again in 2008. And Phyllis joked, they didn't, they didn't fit as well because we'd shrunk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually true. They had both shrunk a little bit. I'm always like amazed by how much people share with us and how much like they give. Like you said, ECG, I remember the the Zoom we had after we taped that. And we don't always feel, let me put it this way, we don't always feel good after an interview. Yeah. <laughs> Not because the interview in itself is bad, but sometimes, you know, we talk about a lot of really difficult, uh, stressful, complex, sometimes depressing subjects. Um, and, you know, as we should, when we cover, we cover the news, but this is the news too. And, you know, looking at it through certain lenses, like Kate's this like policy person who's been around activism for a long time, but you could tell just like how much love she felt for the, for Phyllis, which was really, you don't, we don't have a lot of space for a lot of that in the news these days. So it was very nice to just be a part of that. Yes, totally. And any excuse we ever have to play like old music (laughs) is like one that I always love to take. And this episode just like perfectly ended with Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong singing tenderly, which was Phyllis Lyons' favorite song. Um, And it just like ended tenderly. The entire process was tender. The episode that I chose was actually hosted by ECG as well. It was from June 8th, and the title is These Kids Are Fearless, 
Vallejo families seeking justice for police killings reflect on protests. This was at the height of the protests over police violence that happened across the country this summer. It was happening in the Bay Area as well, but ECG, you had been, you know, you had done the whole series on Vallejo policing about a year ago, um, a year and a half ago now. So we kind of knew the backstory of what was happening in Vallejo and the the fact that families were really leading the protests and and the charge to hold the city but hold police accountable as well. And literally, like we're saying, you have families right here in Vallejo that have been fighting this for 10 years, 15 years, multiple years just dealing with it. If anybody in this crowd has lost somebody, you know what that feels like. And I actually had just moved to Vallejo roughly about a year ago, too. And so I was really interested in in how Vallejo was was reacting to these police shootings. And about a, a week before we did this story, Vallejo police shot and killed Sean Monterosa. He was a 22-year-old brown Hispanic man. Um, he was murdered while on his knees, surrendering with his hands up. Officers said they saw a butt of a hammer and mistaked it for a gun. And people were showing up in Vallejo to protest that. Alicia Sadler, whose brother Angel Ramos was killed by Vallejo police, she basically led the protests that were happening on the day when I went down the street to meet her. Yeah, so what have you seen over the last few days in Vallejo? I've seen people come together of all colors. I've seen people mad. I've seen people angry. I've seen people fed up. And like I said, it makes me really happy. We have watched the arc of what has happened in Vallejo since then, and it has been quite the arc just this past summer. And I feel like this was... A moment in that arc, I I remember just being like hearing like the hope in Alicia's voice was just like really stopped me in my tracks, I think, because I know for a long time and she talks about this in the episode, like we used to come to City Hall and no, it would just be us like no one else would would show up. This is something Vallejo needed. It took for somebody else in a different state to be murdered, but it got Vallejo up and going. I'm curious, what was your favorite moment in that story, Devin? I think she had tweeted something out or put something on social media. I think it was an aerial view of people marching in Vallejo. And, and you know, I asked her about, about this specific photo. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Um, through the past, like when others have been murdered by Vallejo police, we don't come together. We don't have that support from the community. The most we can get is maybe 20, 30 people. And to see these hundreds and hundreds of people coming together and marching for the same thing is what I meant. Like, that's what Vallejo needed, to come together and be as one and show support to each other. It made me think about what's happening in this moment and the people who are showing up and what it really means to the people who've been fighting this for a long time. Devin, has has the way, have your feelings about living in Vallejo changed since you moved there? Yeah, it, it has. There's been so many stories that have that have come out one after the other about about how shady the Vallejo Police Department 
is. And, and also knowing how the city council has handled the police department and all the steps that people have taken to try to hold police accountable, like knowing all that context and then going for a walk down near the waterfront and seeing posters of the city manager or the city attorney and seeing like these new activist groups pop up. Like I can feel that that rise in activism here. You know, I kind of miss about living in Oakland. I, I kind of miss the fact that Oakland was this place where a lot of people showed up for a lot of different types of things. And I feel like I'm just now starting to see that in Vallejo. One thing I liked about this story is that, you know, we often, as reporters, we don't necessarily follow up with the people who we report on. And in this case, we did for this for this story. And I think that's really important to do because we all know that nobody's story just ends after we, we put a story out. And there's so much more that can be said about what's happened to somebody that we report on over the, over the days, over the years, over a time period. And I think like when you listen to those episodes and you listen to how they've changed or what they think about this moment, it just adds so much more to what's going on. Let's turn now to our editor, Alan Montecilio. Uh, so what story did you choose? So the episode that I chose was called Meet the Poll Workers Who Made Election Day Possible, and it aired on Wednesday, November 4th, which obviously was the day right after uh, Election Day. This was not a typical episode. I mean, obviously, it was the day after Election Day, so it wasn't typical in that sense. But it also wasn't typical in the sense that we did not talk to a journalist about a news story uh, that they reported, or, or we did not um, focus on one specific person. Usually we focus on one, maybe two people. In, in this story, we followed three poll workers from across the Bay Area, uh, Amy Marr in Hayward, uh, Tuck Wynn in San Jose, and Rana Chakrabarty in San Ramon. I'm proud of, and I love this episode for, for a number of reasons. One is that it just sounds great. You have all these different voices. There's great music, there's great moments. This is Amy Marr. It is 5.57 uh, in the morning. It's cold, um, the sun is about to come up. I'm at the Mexican Heritage Plaza in East San Jose. They were very generous with their time given how busy they were. You know, they were not only talked to us several times, they recorded themselves before and even during breaks. Things are going great. We've had a steady kind of trickle of voters coming in. And that's not, it's not something that you can, you can recreate. And it's something that they spent, they volunteered their time to do um, because they're very generous people because, and we know that because they already spent time working at the polls. In a pandemic. Um, in a pandemic. So focusing on yeah. people who, who, who spent their time actually making the process work turned out to be a really good thing. It's getting hotter outside and inside, so I'm uh, sweating, running back and forth. I'm uh, translating, uh, helping people filling out forms, uh, sanitizing the place. I'm feeling thankful for the opportunity. I would rather be here than at home. 
are watching the news waiting for the result. So that's the process stuff, but in terms of what it meant to me personally, I think that I'm a person who has always followed politics for a long time as a hobby. I suspect many people listening to this might feel similarly. I suspect lots of people in journalism and editors are like that too. And I've spent the last few years trying to unlearn that, if that makes sense. Because following the news is tremendously stressful and anxiety inducing experience. And one of the things that, that stood out to me in terms of moments was talking to each of these folks and, and hearing them say, doing this makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there was a moment that I loved from, from the first interview with Tuckwin, who lives in San Jose, um, came to the States in the early 90s, became a citizen in mid the mid-2000s. When I became a citizen, I took it very seriously. I mean, I, I don't skip an election. And, and uh, to be there, to be able to help people, to, to give them a ple- pleasant experience voting, that to me is just icing on the cake. I'm in this process of trying to recalibrate what politics is, if that makes sense. What doing, the difference between following politics and doing politics. Following politics makes me really stressed out. It makes me feel like everyone's telling me what to think. I don't even know the sound of my own thoughts anymore <laughs> at a certain point. Hmm. Um, yeah. And doing politics clears out so much of that. And it actually feels better. Yeah. I'm not saying that like doing politics is a stress-free thing that everyone can just do without any, you know. That's I, I, not what I'm saying. I think what I am saying is I'm trying to learn the difference between uh, following politics and doing democracy and that there are, those are actually very, very different things. Mm-hmm. And that talking to these people helped, it helped teach me more of that. And you could say that for all kinds of things. You could say that for following climate change. You could say it for following any number of systemic, seemingly intractable problems that no one person can solve on their own anyway. And I'd like to think that when we do this job well, that can be like my version of that in a way. So when I follow the news all day, I feel terrible. (laughs) But when we do a good episode that summarizes what we want to say about the news, which we feel contributes to our communities in a meaningful way, that can be my version of that. Coming up, we're going to bring in the Bay's fourth member, Kiana Mogadam, and get even more personal with the Bay, including the impacts of 2020 on how we think about our work, the importance of local journalism, and what we've been doing with our shelter-in-place downtime. Stay with us. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! 
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Kiana, you joined the team just a couple of months ago to help us produce our By the People series, which is all about democracy here in the Bay Area. But really, you've been helping us produce all of our episodes and on top of that, our weekly newsletter. But I know you have some questions that you want to ask us. So what you got? Thank you, Devin. I have many questions. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. So has this year impacted the way you all feel about your work as journalists? In a year with so much activism and so much new activism and people like trying to think about for themselves how to step up or where to step in in democracy, like I've struggled with this too, um, especially over the summer when we were seeing um, protests against police violence and people willing to have conversations that they weren't willing to have before. And I was thinking about like, how, what, is, what is my role in all of that? I think I definitely see journalism just by its act as some form of activism. I mean, we're choosing which stories we go out and cover, and especially on the Bay, like we choose which stories we we follow up with. And so I think it's it's made me think about the importance of journalism within a democracy a little bit more than I did before and, and what that means as my role. Like, I, I don't know, I, I just contextualize a little bit more personally now. You know, like as a as a team of um, journalists of color here on the Bay, like, I just, I think about that every day. The work that we do, uh, that journalists of color are doing in this industry and for this industry to change some of the ways that journalism has messed up for years, um, is just such a huge responsibility. You know, I've learned a lot from a lot of my colleagues. Two of those people are both at KQED, actually, it's Sam Harnett and Sandia Dirks. You know, I worked with Sam on this five-part series about the history of work called How We Got Here, which aired on our feed in July. That series with Sam helped me think about sort of just money and class and how much more precarious work has been for people. And that's kind of been undergirding so much of American life for a long time, actually. And then for Sandia, one of the things that Sandia, I think, has pointed out on several occasions that stuck with me is that actually journalism status quo is not objective. It has a power bias. For example, the, the norm of, for example, covering a, an instance of a police shooting that is only sourced from a statement from law enforcement, that's been the norm. And that's actually not objective. So you all touched on this just a little bit, but I want to ask why local news? You know, what is it about local news? The idea that the Bay is news to keep you rooted here that keeps you in it, especially during a year like 2020? I think a year like 2020 
showed us just how important local news is. Like if if you didn't already know it, like people were getting their information about quarantining down to the county, down to the city level about what was open. So I feel like just for the pandemic alone, we saw how important that was. The way that local news, I think, empowers people in the way that like national news sometimes can't. I mean, I'm just thinking about this when we were covering Vallejo, just like in covering that, that story and passing by places that I like used to go to growing up, you know, in the course of reporting that story, like there's just something, there's just something really powerful about that and covering like your community. And I just really believe I, especially after this year, just really believe in like how important it is that people understand what's happening in their backyards. If you want to understand what's going on in this country, it has to start with what's happening where you live. I'm actually worried it's happening the other way. That that our understanding of what's happening is like based on viral headlines about what people are saying where and when and this thing that's happening in this city. Um, well, what's happening around your block, you know? So here in the Bay, we've been sheltering in place since March. I want to know what's one thing that you picked up during this time that you want to keep doing when the pandemic is over. So I've started to try to get a writing schedule, uh, nonfiction, also fiction, just any like pen to paper. And so I'm hoping to continue at some level of just writing, you know, par- partially for me, partially for my new baby, Finley. Um, I did a little bit of that before she was born, just talking about, you know, what life was like, what I hoped for her in the future and all that stuff. Going for like long, unstructured walks anywhere, you know, I feel a, a, a good amount of pressure to like, whenever I do something that's good for myself to try and justify it for how it like optimizes the rest of my life. And like, yes, doing it, doing things like going for a walk on a regular basis are good. But there were times when I would just like leave my house and walk to Golden Gate Park and I really have like no schedule. Um, sometimes I leave my phone at home and just kind of walk around until I felt like I was done. And then I walked home and sometimes that was 15 minutes. Sometimes it was two and a half hours and it was fine. It was great. (laughs) I learned how to roller skate. Oh yeah. My dream is to learn how to boogie on them so I can show up, uh, at a roller rink with some moves. (laughs) I expect you to roll into our new offices. We're like, where's ECG? She's late. And then the camera is is at the floor and the (laughs) skates are there and then it pans up. And the bay music hits. Dun, 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 (laughs) dun. I'm still trying to get some moves under my belt. It's going to take me a while, but I got time, I think. If you could send a message back in time to yourself at the beginning of 2020, what would you say? Buckle up, baby. (laughs) gonna be a long one mine is a little more i don't know if it's more depressing it's uh wear a mask now tell everyone to wear a mask now i think i would tell myself it's gonna be at least a year before things get back to normal just said that setting that reality for me er earlier would have allowed me to maybe adjust a little bit better does anyone want to send one forward like forward to the Alan, ECG, and Devin of this time next year. You survived one of the wildest years, probably of your lifetime. (laughs) 
Congratulations. I think mine kind of goes back to the Phyllis Lyon episode, and that is just be thankful and enjoy your life right now. Enjoy what you have. So be open to change. I think I just need to remind myself to, to embrace that and allow myself to be surprised and, and allow myself to be wrong about things. And just, you know, that's all you really can do, uh, especially when, you're, when you do journalism. At least I think that's how it should be. So now we want to hear from you. What are some of your favorite episodes from the Bay in 2020? What episodes stuck with you and why? What episodes did you share with friends and family or that got you talking around the dinner table or wherever else you'd have these conversations? Write us an email and we'll try to get you into our next newsletter. Our email is thebay at kqed.org. We'll also leave that in our episode notes. Thank you so much to the whole Bay team who I'm incredibly grateful to work with. This show is created from the minds of Erica Cruz Guevara, Kiana Mogadam, myself, and Alan Montecilio. The show wouldn't be possible without the support from KQED's podcast leadership team. That's Jessica Plachek, Erica Aguilar, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. The Bay is local news to keep you rooted. We're going to be on break until the first episode of the new year, which runs on January 4th. So if you haven't already, subscribe to be sure that you catch us when that episode drops. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it from us. We'll be back with you in 2021. We love you, Bay Area. Talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.